Well, good morning, Clearwater Church. Uh, my name is Alec Paul. I'm the associate pastor here at Clearwater, and I get the great privilege of opening up the word with you today. Um, on Thursday morning, I went and picked up my friend Ben at the airport. He's staying with us for this weekend from Fairbanks, so you can blame him for the 20-degree temperatures. <laughs> he said, and as soon as he got into my truck, he said, um, hey, I heard I get to hear you preach this weekend. I, that's great. What's, what's your topic? And I said, sex. He, he said, oh. Hey, well, it could be worse, man. It could be tithing. So thank you, Mike. I'll do that in the spring, I think. I definitely felt some apprehension when I agreed to do this topic. Um, but when I mentioned it to my circle of friends, I've asked for prayer, and every one of them has said, you know, this is such an important topic. It affects us so much, and um, the church needs to do a good job talking about this. And so I've gone from being apprehensive. <laughs> My apprehension about talking about sex with you has uh, gone away, and now I'm excited about this message. I think this is going to be a liberating day for many people. I, God has got some great things in store. Um, so this summer, um, I was right around 4th of July, I was kind of looking for some kind of patriotic experience, and so in my Amazon Music recommendation al recommended albums, they suggested that I listen to um, this new Broadway smash hit musical called Hamilton, which tells the story of one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. And so I went ahead and listened to it, and I immediately became entrenched with the story. It's a fascinating story. Alexander Hamilton was one of our founding fathers. Uh, and he started out really, really humble. He was an orphan at about age 10, and he ends up immigrating to America and getting into one of the best colleges in New York City, and immediately is in the throes of the Revolutionary War. And he works his way up very quickly to become George Washington's most trusted assistant, his actual secretary, his personal secretary, who's responsible for writing all the correspondence to Congress and to his field generals. Eventually, he develops such a trust with Washington that Washington puts him in charge of a field command. And he, he ends up being very brave and proving himself to be very effective in major battles like the Battle of Yorktown. So they end up actually winning the Revolutionary War, and this is like a 25-year-old war hero. Very, very impressive person. So, of course, George Washington becomes our first president. And he chooses to hire the most talented people and people that he trusts the most. So he ends up giving one of his very few four or five different cabinet positions. One of them goes to Alexander Hamilton. He becomes our first Secretary of the Treasury. And he's responsible for establishing our banking system, which has lasted for 240 years. He's also responsible for things like our standing army and creating the Coast Guard and the post office. I mean, this guy is amazingly accomplished. And he's in that conversation with like the Thomas Jeffersons of the world. Who's going to be our second or third president? This guy is our future leader. So he ends up marrying a beautiful woman who comes from a wealthy family and he's kind of growing in society and he's got power and he's got prestige. And while he's working on getting his financial plan through Congress in the very, very early ages of our country, 
he has his family go up to upstate New York for vacation, and he stays behind in Philadelphia and is working day after day, countless hours, no sleep. And it's when he's at his most vulnerable and stressed, along comes a beautiful 23-year-old blonde girl who's married. And she says, Dear sir, I am destitute. My abusive husband has left me. I'm here in Philadelphia. Um, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to stay, but I'm hoping that you can help me. If you could just provide some money or some direction, I would greatly appreciate it. I know you're an honorable man. And Hamilton says, I am busy at the moment, but let me know where you live, and maybe I'll come by tonight and help you. Yeah. So he does show up at her door, and she invites him into her house. He's got some money to help her out with, and then she invites him upstairs, and then she invites him into her bedroom, and so begins Alexander Hamilton's fall. Why isn't he on the face of Mount Rushmore? Why, isn't he, why doesn't he have a great memorial in Washington, D.C.? Because he did not follow the instructions of Proverbs 5. Now, it's one thing that he had this affair, but it gets much worse. The husband of Maria Reynolds, this girl, James Reynolds, confronts him and says, you, I'm going to tell your wife, I'm going to tell George Washington, I'm going to tell everybody, unless you give me $1,000. And Hamilton consents. And Reynolds says, you can continue sleeping with her if you keep on paying me. And Hamilton consents. Apparently he's addicted to that relationship. Eventually, Reynolds gets thrown in jail, and he wants Hamilton to help him out of that situation. And Hamilton refuses. So Reynolds is a no dummy. He's got the goods on Hamilton. He goes to Thomas Jefferson and other political opponents who might be running for president soon, and says, this is what Hamilton has done, and I've got proof. And I wonder if he took that money from the public purse. Hmm. So, Hamilton gets wind that his reputation is about to become destroyed, and he tries to salvage it. He thinks that he's going to get out in front of the negative press by controlling the narrative, so he writes a 100-page pamphlet that details every sort of detail of his affair, including all the letters between him and Maria Reynolds. And he publishes it so that every literate person in the colonies is able to know about his folly. So he humiliates his wife, he humiliates his children, he humiliates George Washington and everybody who's ever vouched for him, he humiliates the party that he helped create, and he destroyed his legacy. It's like a walking death. So Mr. Hamilton learned that all sexual expression outside of God's plan of one man and one woman committed to each other for life in marriage lead to the same destination, death. Perhaps not immediate physical death, but certainly a walking type death. Something that looks so good to the senses like honey proves to be bitter. However, if we embrace God's sexual ethic, we can expect ecstasy to come. 
like a tall glass of ice water on a hot day, God intends us to be continually refreshed with the sweet water of healthy sexual expression. His way. Now, Proverbs 5 contrasts the bitter honey of the adulterous woman with the sweet water of the wife of one's youth. However, don't let that specific metaphor lead you to conclude that this passage we're about to read is only for married men and only talking about adulterous women. Rather, look at it as expressing a sexual ethical principle that is applicable to all of us. That God's way for sexual expression brings life and every other way brings death. So it doesn't matter if you are male or female. It doesn't matter if you are single or dating or engaged or married or struggling in marriage or post-marriage. God has instructions for you today. We can all benefit from this passage. And it doesn't matter if it's about helping you maintain or achieve sexual purity. It might be that you are going to help somebody else do that. So I would say, as we read Proverbs 5, let's read it with an expectation that God is going to use this to bless each one of us. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life, her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets? Your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? for your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Now, it seems to me that God isn't against or even neutral towards us enjoying sex. Rather, it instructs us how. So what's the lesson here? 
As I read in a brilliant devotion in my men's devotional Bible 15 years ago, I'll paraphrase it. Sexual misconduct, like pornography, fornication, what have you, the problem with it is, is that it's not too sexual. They're not too naked. They're not, having, they're not enjoying it too much. It's that it's not sexual enough. It makes everything about stimulating the nerve endings of reproductive organs while neglecting God's intended and, re- and vital relationship aspect. The heart is cut out of the process. The soul is held outside the gates. The trust and the vulnerability that marriage provide are given the stiff arm. The Lord himself is uninvited. And the experience becomes more and more selfish and more animal-like. And our humanity suffers when we sully ourselves with such folly. Imagine you're on a picnic in the heat of summer. You're just dying of thirst. And then somebody offers you a nice, cold, refreshing 16-ounce Coca-Cola. And they say, would you like some of this to be refreshed? And you say, no, I'm good. I've got 55 grams of sugar, and I have a spoon. I'll just sit here and eat this. God has something better for you. My daughter Esther is three years old and we're still working on potty training. We checked out seven books from the library. (laughs) And we're... One of them, in particular, that I've read 3,000 times, um, it says very specifically, if you want to win the potty game, then you have to be smarter than your body. Otherwise, you'll continue making messes that somebody else has to clean up. And when we engage in sexual misconduct, we're acting like toddlers. We're setting our self-control aside. And then we make messes that somebody else has to clean up. Life-altering, life-ending, potentially, messes. The Old Testament presents us with laws against sexual misconduct and corresponding punishments. It also gives us commentaries on sexual sins, like this passage and other passages in the book of Proverbs that basically describe sexual misconduct as folly. And then it has very specific examples, like King David, that show the havoc that are wreaked upon people when we engage in misconduct. Think about that. Parallels between King David and Alexander Hamilton. Humble beginning and rising in military power and fame and honor and glory and political power and then he chooses to sleep with someone other than his wife. 
But in the New Testament, Jesus elevates the standards. In Matthew 5, 27, 28, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So with that as the enduring standard of the church, all of us have been guilty of sexual folly at some point. So how then should we live as God intended sexually? That is, how do we draw and maintain healthy, healthy excuse me, boundary lines? I see five principles. I'm going outside the text of Proverbs, but looking at the overall corpus, what's God's message over and over again consistently, I see these things appearing. The first one, the first principle, is to partner with God to fight temptation. Reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I can't hear that message without thinking about the patriarch Joseph in Genesis 39, where he is being tempted over and over again by his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife, in the palace. And she keeps on trying to come on to him, and then he actually just has to literally run out of the room and run out of the palace. God provided a way out. The next principle that I want to point out is that we need to live in harmony with God's joy-filled plan for sex. He's got good plans for you. Returning to Proverbs 5, this time I'm in verses 15 through 19. I guess you'll see it on the screen behind me. Emphasizing this. I'm going to go a little bit slower. There's some subtleties. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Can anybody here tell me another place in the Bible where God tells us to be intoxicated? This is good news, amen? Amen. But the context is so important. Boundaries provide context which enable beauty. In about two hours, the Seahawks are going to start playing. (laughs) And Russell Wilson is going to Um, make my illustration come to life. I guarantee it. (laughs) Think of a perfect pass thrown into the back of the end zone. And think about that receiver who's eyeing that pass, and he's running his very fastest sprint, and then he jumps at just the right time, as high as he can jump, and he just barely um, is higher than the defender, and he catches the ball with his fingertips, and he brings it in, and he drags his toes just in time inside the end zone to get the game-winning touchdown. That play loses all of its meaning and all of its value if you don't have a boundary. 
Boundaries provide the context, which enable beauty. Simplify that sport. If you don't know football, just imagine a soccer game that has no out-of-bounds and 20 people chasing the ball wherever it gets kicked. We love sports because people are performing within these constraints, and it's challenging to do. The third principle I want to point out to you today, and this can be a really, really valuable tool, is to give your spouse or a trusted confidant total freedom to hold you accountable to the highest sexual ethic. I've been married eight years. After about one year, I went and talked to uh, some godly counsel about how to establish healthy sexual boundaries in my marriage. And so I went and talked to this gentleman who I had rapport with and who was, you know, had been married longer than me, etc. And he said that I give my wife complete freedom to ask me at any moment if I have been faithful to her with my eyes, with my hands, and with my heart. And so I immediately endorsed that and started using it. And it has become a bedrock strategy of our marriage. And it's been fruitful. And my wife has total freedom to ask me at any given point if I have been faithful. Lying to her would be just as destructive as being unfaithful and telling her the truth. So the, there's really only one that you, way that you can live. Be faithful. Be honest. There's a lot less to remember. So I want to thank Mr. Mariner for that advice. Huge. But I have a warning. If you take today as an opportunity to clean the slate of the past and start living with strategies so that you can experience sexual purity, you're going to fall in love with your purity. And, and it, it might change your life. Because instead of getting a little bit of a goodie or joy out of that cheap thrill when you're on the internet and you think you're on a pretty generic safe website but the banner ad is a singles ad, and you enjoy that, and you take it in, and you decide, I'm going to put that in the back of my mind and enjoy it later, you start thinking differently. You're like, ah, I hate that ad. I don't want to see that. I don't want to be tempted. I'm so thankful that I can live without guilt, and that I can worship in spirit and in truth, because I am not letting little cheap thrills store up in the back of my mind. I remember a pastor at Changepoint who used to say his strategy was this. If he's scanning the crowd or if he's walking around the mall and he sees a beautiful girl, he goes, wow, that girl is not mine. Where's my bride? It'll change the way you start thinking about how you're going to live your life, where you're going to spend your time, how you're going to spend your money. I see these coffee shops selling sex in order to get you to come into the store. How bad must the coffee be? <laughs> I hate those places. Carl's Jr. burger ads. So frustrating. I don't want to see that. Because I've got something sweet going on over here. I don't want to destroy it. The fourth principle I see is 
we need to practice confession of our sexual sins. Reading from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. Lay it down at the cross and walk away from it. He is faithful to forgive. And the next thing, the final thing I want to point out to you today is strategies to live sexually as God intended is to grant forgiveness for sexual sins if you've been offended or harmed. God's word is clear. I'm reading now from Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So what can we take away from all this? There's a lot of scripture, five different points, lots of fill-ins. This is my point. Contrary to what you may have imagined, God is not some miserly old dude who hates sex and is ashamed of your desires. On the contrary, he designed sex and gave it to us as a gift. And scripture is clear on that. So heed this encouragement to enjoy sex in its proper place. It's God's best for you. The sexual crescendo of a married man and woman is a glimpse of heaven. It is a reminder of the awesome relational characteristics of our triune God. And it should be celebrated as a sacred act of worship. It's sacred. Boundaries provide context which enable beauty. So embrace God's sexual ethic and expect the ecstasy to follow. If you make a mess, confess your sins and he is faithful to forgive. Speaking of forgiveness, Elizabeth Hamilton forgave Alexander. They went on to have two more children after their affair. He died in a duel shot by Aaron Burr at a young age. But she went on to live 50 more years defending his honor. And he reveals in his writings that he was a lover of Jesus Christ. And I would venture to say that he's in heaven enjoying grace. Standing forgiven before the Father as well. For no matter how badly we screw things up, we can take great comfort in the promise found in Romans 8, 38-39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Yes, that includes your darkest sexual sins. Nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's good news. 